Welcome to Kildare Talks, where we listen and learn from the people who work across the county, offering us guidance and support on our health and well-being to help us live healthy and well. My guest today is Dr. Shane O'Donnell. Shane is a health promotion officer with the HSE. Shane has a background in men's health with a particular focus on mental health and suicide prevention. Shane also works as a researcher in the National Centre of Men's Health in IT Carlo. Shane, you're very welcome. Shane, we're going to talk about men's health with a particular focus on mental health and suicide prevention among men. But can I start by asking, in your view, why are we having conversations about men and mental health in recent years? Why is it a topic that's important to us now? I suppose the first thing to start with is really maybe not the nicest place to start with, but it's probably because of the suicide rates amongst men. So really, when we went through the economic recession in 2008, we just saw a spike in suicide rates amongst men. And I think this really brought around like a desire to try and do something and an interest in the area to try and support men around that. But really around that time as well, what was unique to Ireland was the publication of the first men's health policy in the world, and that was in Ireland. And really what that did was give us the basis to build off of and a rationale to build programs to support men around that. So I think within a national context to mix between those kind of mental health issues on the rise and a mix between that policy being there. But I suppose on a more global aspect, I think we were starting to realise that this notion of man up that was maybe around for many, many years, hundreds of years probably, of to not seek help, the man has to be the provider, can't show weakness. I think people were starting to realise that this model wasn't fit for purpose and it was really starting to cause people distress. Was this rise in suicide rates among men, was that across the age groups? It was across some age groups, but it was mostly amongst middle-aged men. So middle-aged, a lot of some people, <laughs> including yourself, don't like the definition. It is, it's about 40 to 59. So that was the age group between kind of 2008 and 2016, 17 that experienced the biggest rise in suicide. It did also rise amongst younger men and kind of men in their 30s as well, but it was most pronounced amongst that age group. But when we actually look at it by sex, comparing males to females, although it's difficult when you start comparing because every suicide and loss is a tragedy but the overall rate in Ireland tended to be as a result of the male rate going up the female rate didn't really change a whole lot. So typically a man's response then to something as challenging as say the economic crisis that triggered something then that level of maybe distress or despair that comes with job loss that triggered something. Yeah, well, I suppose we just have to take it from the start. Like when we raise boys, the messages you start to pick up from when you're a toddler are things like, come on, get up, big boys, don't cry. You know, those phrases seem fairly innocuous, like, but they kind of represent the way that men should be, and that's to be invulnerable and stoic and to not experience distress. And... Uh, on top of that then as you're moving forward you experience things like well men should be the provider they should be the breadwinner that's your role if you have a family and really then as you move into your 30s you start to see things like well because of this provider thing kids take precedence that you don't have to keep working to, to provide for the kids your social contacts really from the 30s on where it start to reduce because you're focused on work you're focused on productivity you're focused on all these things so 
when men then, particularly during the economic recession, when there was a lot of unemployment, think about that from that perspective of that man now. So you've picked up all these societal messages of you have to provide, you can't be weak, you can't have a mental health problem. If you do seek help for a mental problem, you're weak. Like it's almost like a double burden. You're weak if you have a mental health problem and you're weaker if you seek help for it. You should deal with it on your own. And then you lose your job, you can't provide for your family. Where's your social supports? You've been working so much that your friends group significantly smaller. Where do you go from there? Like it's a very difficult situation that many men would have found themselves in, particularly then when you look at the decimation of pensions during the recession. You have the whole changes in society in terms of the banking collapse, in terms of church scandals. So all these pillars of structure, if you want to call them in Irish society, were starting to be eroded as well. There was mass migration. The conversations in the churchyard weren't really around anymore because people really weren't doing that. So there's loads of changes. And then you also have this middle-aged group that probably grew up with an idea of what being a man was, who now find themselves in the 2010, 2020s, and that notion of what it means to be a man is changing. So they often find themselves very different to their sons as well and trying to navigate that as well. So I think it's just, there's a lot of kind of things there. Talk to me more about the social supports then changing. So in your 30s, if say you're focused on family and providing, friendships drop. Is that a common thing then for men in you know, 30s, 40s? I suppose it's dependent on the person, but it is something that's highlighted in the research is that men's social circles tend to narrow around their 30s. And I know one time I was talking to a farmer in my research and he said a really kind of line that stuck in my head and he said, we work and kids and doesn't take long for the phone to stop ringing, do you know? And that line just always stuck in my head, do you know? And just to think it's true. And by the time you find yourself then in this middle age category, kids start going to college, then you're kind of left with, okay, well, like, wh- where where is it all gone now? So kid? there's an isolation then that comes just by living life. Again, it depends on the person, but yeah, like from my research, talking to middle-aged men, isolation would have been an issue. And sometimes, you know, there's a difference between the word isolation and loneliness. Isolation is when you don't have anybody around. Loneliness is when you do have people around, but you still feel in a way isolated or lonely and the men I talked to in my research would have talked about both of them in terms of feeling isolated not having much social contacts but also not having much social opportunities as a middle-aged man beyond the pub sometimes which can be a trigger for people especially if they had an issue with alcohol use and also in terms of social opportunity like where do middle-aged men go if they don't go to the pub if they're not involved in a GA club and then in the loneliness side of things, like a feeling isolated, even when you're around people, was around having all of these maybe inner monologues or inner issues around mental health and how am I going to provide if I don't have the job, but not being able to share that with their family or friends because they feel like now they're going to burden them with their problems as well. And that feeds into this whole masculinity thing of, well, I have to deal with my own stuff. It's not on anybody else. So there's kind of multiple layers. So there's that sort of struggle in silence then that goes on. Exactly. And like what I would talk to numerous groups would have been around groups that are maybe on the margins or marginalised. So it would have been middle-aged men, uh, traveller middle-aged men, middle-aged men who if we experience domestic abuse, transgender middle-aged men, mm-hmm. ethnic minority middle-aged men. So there's also this added layer then for groups who are 
facing discrimination in society as well from being things like name calling or being refused entry to pubs transgender men or gay men if they came out like being maybe shunned by their family in some instances so you start to see these different layers depending on different aspects of identity and, and how that can really impact someone's mental health is it in a man's nature then to bury themselves in their work during those middle ages to maybe fill the gap or fill the space yeah, like I wouldn't like to generalise and say it's that all men do X, Y or Z. But if we think about the messages that we pick up of how to be a man, if the message that we pick up is that work is a positive thing, to cope with your difficulties, you'd probably focus them into the areas that are perceived to be the positive part for men. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's why some men maybe would bury themselves in work. It's because it's something to do. It's something that is seen as valuable amongst men. He's a hard worker. Do you know what I mean? That's why I would see people doing that and who maybe then don't have the awareness or maybe the knowledge or was ever involved in any other activities of how to cope with the stress. Do you know what I mean? And is that across the professions, like whether you're learning blocks or... In terms of what occupations uh-huh. people do? Or where people have a tendency to bury themselves into their work? I'm not sure the answer to that question Anthony again I'd say it depends on the person like from people I would have talked to the tendency for people to bury themselves in their work would have been those who maybe didn't have the resources the knowledge the awareness of how to cope with the stress so men who maybe would have learned about mental health in an education program in a men's shed or in a different men's health program or their kids taught them about it those were the men who tended to have those tools to support themselves around the stress and maybe not bury themselves in work. I suppose that brings me to the next question then is at what point do we as men start to learn about mental health? Is it always sort of self-directed? Are there opportunities out there for us to have conversations about, you know, being a man, the messages, even the messages that you give to your children? Like I'm mindful I'm a dad of two boys and you've said things there that I know I've said to my boys. And yet I would have thought I was a little bit enlightened <laughs> or, or I'm just deceiving myself. But where do we go to learn about these conversations or these concepts? I think there's two parts to that question. It's a really good question. And one is like, how do we educate men better around mental health? But it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. It's how do we challenge the gender norms of how we socialise men to feel that mental health is a complete weakness and he can't seek help. So... If that never changed and we gave them all the skills and tools of how to deal with mental health issues, it might not make as much of a difference if it's still perceived as the wrong thing to do as a man. So I think it's an incredibly difficult thing to do as well because you're talking about challenging gender norms that have existed for a very long time. But it needs to start somewhere and it starts with our interactions with each other it starts by not telling boys that big boys don't cry maybe i should explain what gender norms are a bit better so there's a difference between sex and gender so sex is the biological and physiological characteristics that determine a man or a woman so hormones genitalia chromosomes gender is the attitudes roles behaviors that are associated with each sex so what is a man meant to be like what how should they walk talk and that's different across different cultures it's different across societies it can be different in the moment depending on what that moment is that's how we define sex and the difference between sex and gender so how do those gender norms exist so they exist because there's sort of a belief that 
if we buy into these traditional norms of what it means to be a man, which I've kind of talked about already, to be stoic, to be the provider, to rely on yourself, that that's somehow valuable. You'll be seen as maybe a real man kind of thing. And it's that belief in that system that creates gender norms. So then those beliefs leak into social institutions, political institutions, global institutions. So commercial companies globally would in some way represent those gender norms by the way they act in society and all that kind of stuff. And that trickles back down into the individual, which trickles back up, if you make sense. So it's like a cycle of how the gender norms keep being reinforced. But I think to challenge them, as, as, as it was the point that I was, I was trying to make, is it starts with our daily interactions with each other. It starts with telling boys that it's okay to cry. It's about not expecting that men always have to provide. Luckily, we are moving in the society to a sense where there are two people providing income in, in homes and stuff like that. But it's trying to challenge that from the daily interactions. There is some research to suggest that those gender norms only started to be brought about more strictly because of the Industrial Revolution. So when it was mainly kind of farm work and stuff like that, there is some evidence to suggest that most of the housework and farm work was shared amongst the whole family. But when it went to the Industrial Revolution, there started to be a change where it was heavy physical work, same way as farm work would be, but it was mostly in the cities. So they tended to send the men into the cities to do that work because of their physicality, because of, you know, things like that. So the, the woman tended to stay home. The man started to bring the income and that's where the power started to come in as well. So, so there is some evidence that suggests that that's where some of these gender norms... So it's not something that was always there throughout time? It's very hard to say that because it, it's a, it, some of it is kind of hypothetical and theoretical and stuff like that, but there is some evidence that should that it became more ingrained around the Industrial Revolution. So that offers a sprinkle of hope because when you were talking earlier, I thought you know, you're really talking about challenging something that's embedded within our nature over over a very long time. But what you're sort of suggesting that it may not be as embedded. So there is a little bit of hope that you could. I, I think so. But uh, there's also the sense that like men's health it's not just men who should be involved in challenging these gender norms because when we think about many societal issues that we face at the moment, things like the gender pay gap, things like domestic violence against women and stuff like that, these are all still men's health issues because if we can challenge those ideas that men are empowered, that like they hold a powerful position in society, that they all these sort of things. That's an everybody problem because if we start to challenge them, it starts to maybe fix issues like the mental health of men and all that kind of stuff, but also things like domestic violence, also things like the gender pay gap. Do you know what I mean? So it's a everybody should row in behind challenging these gender norms because because the system the system creates a problem for men's mental health. Yeah, created by men, created by but men. also creating many of the societal problems that we also experience in the relationship between males and females. Tell me a little bit about the men's health policy. When you said Ireland was the first country in the world to have one, why was that? Like, Why would Ireland have stepped into that space of being the leader in that area? I'm not too sure the exact answer to that, but... A lot of it would have came down to one or two, three people who are very interested in the area. So the Department of Health and the HSE would have asked Dr. Noel Richardson 
in IT Carlo to explore writing a policy and the need for it in Ireland. I don't know why exactly it came about, but I'm really glad that it did because it's allowed us to develop a programme of work that I feel has been useful anyway. These policies then allow us to start these conversations and to put a spotlight on them. Policies are incredibly important when working in health because they give you a reason for why you're doing something. So if anybody goes, why should we focus on that? You have evidence and a backing as to why you should do that. And from that, then you can start to develop training. You can start to develop a suite of resources that that you can then implement in the community. Like so as well, we were talking about training earlier on. Like I think one of the really positives out of the mental health policy is the development of Engage Training, which is a national training program that's delivered in Ireland and what that program does is educate just service providers in general in the health service in the community space on how to better engage men around their health so some of the stuff I would have talked about like what is sex what's gender how do we challenge gender norms are in that training which then develop into like well how do we go about engaging men in in their health? What are some of the key things that we should do? So it's really, really positive training. I really encourage people to attend. Can I ask Shane, is there much of a difference between, I'm going to say younger men, (laughs) when I say younger men, I mean younger than me, younger men growing up in sort of a more modern Ireland compared to Alzheimer's like myself, when it comes to how we think or talk about mental health. I can't expect you to answer for all men in, in Ireland. I'm, I'm mindful of that. But just in your experience, just as a as a younger man, do you notice a difference? Yeah, well, without generalising it, I think it, in a way it is dependent on the person. There could be a young man who grew up in modern Ireland who is really doesn't feel comfortable talking about mental health or perceives it as a sign of weakness and there could be an older man in the 70s or 80s that, that has no issue talking about it. So it is dependent on the person. But I do think there is a greater awareness of mental health in younger men. And I think that that is actually starting to leak into older men as well. I do think there is a greater awareness of mental health and importance of seeking support and stuff as well but so is that awareness that the younger men are more comfortable talking about their mental health that that the fear factor isn't there as as much as what it used to be yeah uh, again it's, it's an incredibly complex area but i think there's definitely a greater awareness of the need to talk about mental health there's a greater awareness of the available services there's lots of campaigns and, and that's great i think the stigma that people perceive in society with regards to mental health is decreasing. But when it comes down to the individual or the individual man to say I have a problem or I need help, I'm still not sure if that's... It's not as straightforward as that. Yeah, it's not. The societal stigma reducing doesn't necessarily mean that it will influence someone to then seek help when they have the stress. I think it is increasing but not to the pace at which the societal stigma is decreasing, if that if that makes sense. is this, You mentioned earlier the sort of the structures. So say the structures, say even in the world of sport, did the messages that come from sport, will it be GA, will it be rugby, will it be boxing clubs? And the reason why I mention them, because I've, over the years, I've done quite a lot of work with the GA clubs and the rugby clubs and the camogie clubs and soccer clubs around raising awareness, especially around youth mental health. Does that influence, do you think, younger people to be more open 
about these subjects, especially young, you know, younger men coming through that are playing and training maybe two nights a week? I think so. I think that we can't underestimate the importance of positive male role models amongst young men. Sport's not the only way to do that, but it is one way to do it. Uh, and we know from research as well, having role models that kind of champion positive male traits does positively influence young men. It is talking about mental health and saying you got support and stuff like that as well. But it's also just champion of what it means to be a good person, being kind, being empathetic, you know, just being a decent man as well. So it is really, really important. And, you know, even things like Marcus Rashford and like his campaigns in England, I think it's just incredibly positive to have those role models for young men to look up to. Because over the past number of years, you think of who are the positive male role models? Who could men look up to when we've experienced what's going on you know, in the world at the moment? What's going on with the UK government? What was happening in the US government? Like, who do we look to to be like, they champion positive maleness? Who's the person that you mentioned in the UK? What's, what's that campaign about? So Marcus Rashford is a soccer player for Manchester United and he would have run some campaigns around continuing the food programme for kids in area of disadvantage that they continue to get school lunches outside of the school terms. And he also had quite a big campaign about getting kids reading books and stuff. And he would have grown up in a disadvantaged area as a young black man and would have availed of these school lunches and dinners and stuff like that so it's just great to see him championing what it means to be a good man in, in his communities and stuff like that So and across the country Do you think the schools are doing a good job with bringing these conversations into the classroom? I think the schools are doing the best that they can with the resources that they have. The reason why I'm asking that at the minute, two of my boys are actually every night they're coming home with handouts where they fill in the blanks about how they feel about different stuff. And it's just it's been interesting to learn how they interpret emotions and the, the world of emotions. And there's certainly conversations that, that didn't exist in my world growing up as, as a young lad. The, the subject just wasn't talked about in school or, or outside of school. But yet it's something that you can get into good conversations with, with my young lads about, you know, at the dinner table, even at the breakfast, because sometimes the conversations carry on through to the morning time. Yeah, for sure. Like the SPHE program is doing a lot in secondary schools. There's another program I just can't think of the name of as well. Um, that's doing some really good work around mental health and stuff as well. I still think there is a need to have a gendered element of it. These messages that boys pick up and the links to that to mental health. There's a tendency for boys and men, in my opinion, if they've picked up a lot of those messages and really kind of feel that traditional masculine ideologies are feel the need to live up to them. There's a message to code lots of emotions as anger when it's not anger. And the ability to be able to stop, pause and think, why do I feel like this? It could be sadness. It could be feeling rejected. It could be, it could be something, anxiety. But because that would even be coded as, oh, look at him crying or look at him, he's all down. It, it tends to then come out as anger. Again, I think there just needs to be a gendered element and more work done with men and boys around understanding our emotions and what we're really feeling and identifying if there is a cause, but why are we feeling this way and how might I move forward and 
not beating yourself up for feeling sad because there are sad things that happen in life. That's a part of life. How can we do that then as parents or coaches or teachers or, you know, aunts, uncles, neighbours? How, how do we encourage our young people and our men to start using different words to how we're feeling or more accurate words to describe how we're feeling? A bit of it comes down to challenges those gender norms again. It's it's about not telling big boys don't cry, like, come on, get up, you're grand, that, that kind of thing. If Like, if they are hurt and crying it that's okay do you know what i mean like there is some research even to suggest that toddlers if a boy and a girl is crying more likely to pick the girl up even though they're the same age just even things little things like that just unconscious bias things that we kind of have with boys and girls having those conversations that you were talking about with kids around the, the dinner table or the breakfast table and I suppose, yeah, normalising it and just encouraging people, just giving maybe men and boys space to say, like, how are you? Like, what's going on? Even though it might be coming across as anger, then your reaction would be to get angry back. But to maybe just let it settle and go, you all right? Like, what's what's going on? It doesn't seem like you're really angry about that or is it something else? Like, you know, there's a great kind of acronym around opening conversations with men called ALEC, A-L-E-C. And the A stands for ask. So just to ask people, like, you know, how are you? You might need to ask twice because generally if you're an Irish man, it'd be, I'm grand. So how are you really though? And, you know, if they say they don't want to talk about it, that's fine. Just say, no problem at all. If you ever want to check back in with me, you know, I'm open to talking about that. Leave the door open. If they do talk, make sure you do listen and you actively listen. So put the phone down, give the person space, allow them to talk. You know, sometimes as men, you know, we're sitting across from each other today, Anthony, but sometimes men don't like that front on, eyes to eyes. Sometimes the shoulder to shoulder, that slogan in the men's health or the men's shed uh, movement works. So go out for a walk, do an activity, play music, build something. It's sometimes the conversation in the car, I don't know about you and your kids, but sometimes they're the best conversation you have with boys because you're kind of sitting side by side. Now, that's not that we stay side by side. Ultimately, we need to bring men to the face-to-face conversations because that's where the real humanness is, to really actively listen. And then to be empathetic with the situation, to reflect back what they're saying, to ensure that you're understanding what they're saying, to not pass judgment. And I know we were talking about it earlier, but to not feel the need to jump in and fix the problem, because sometimes people just want to talk and sometimes even just asking the person, do you want my advice here or do you just want to talk about it? You know, that can be really helpful as well. And the last thing they see is to check back in. So, you know, sometimes these conversations happen over alcohol with men and then you kind of all act like it never happened and it's never brought back up again so you know when we do have those conversations they should be had without alcohol and even if it does happen with alcohol you probably follow up afterwards without it but is to check back in with that person and go look you know we had that conversation like how are you now or they might not want to talk about it then but just check back in and give them that opportunity to say no I'm alright and I suppose within that the E part of it like is to maybe signpost to any services that you are aware of like you know it seems like you might need a bit of help or you wear this service or that service and they might say I don't want that and say okay well look if you ever want a hand 
access now I can give them a call for you or, or things like that you know just be a support but you're not there to provide the professional support if they need that you're there as a listening ear and I suppose just to be a friend really like so Shane on that note thank you so much for coming in to chat today I've learned a lot so thank you thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to your next podcast until then, slong go foil. <laughs>